everyone. Welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and today's story is about Sean Lannan, an oil refinery employee that appeared to progressively lose his humanity and sink deeper into this gross pit of depravity. A seemingly regular family man turned into a serial killer in a matter of days as he embarked on a cross-country killing spree. Although our story wanders outside of New Jersey state lines into New Mexico, it begins and ends right here at home. But before we get started today, let's hear our terrifying tidbit. According to the American Addiction Centers, 75% of individuals who have begun treatment for a substance abuse issue engage in some sort of violent crime. In 2016 alone, 90,000 domestic violence deaths worldwide were because someone was under the influence of alcohol. Drug use and alcohol were involved in up to 60% of domestic violence cases. Also, the use of multiple substances and suffering from mental illnesses greatly increased the chances of violent behavior. In addition, men are more likely than women to be aggressive and combative when under the influence. I do want to clarify that I am not demonizing those who struggle with substances, only acknowledging that drugs do play a large role in this story. Because this case is absolutely insane, our story actually ends in East Greenwich. This is the town where the last murder was committed and actually the only place in New Jersey where a murder occurred, and it is also where one of our victims is buried. So I figured this would be our Jersey town of focus. East Greenwich is a rural township in Gloucester County, about 20 minutes south of Philadelphia. The population is around 11,500 people and 96% of people own their homes. This is definitely a residential town where families come to settle down. There isn't much to do there, there isn't even a grocery store or pharmacy. Sean Lannan attended school in the next district over. East Greenwich has little to no crime, especially violent crime. Most of the town is either children or senior citizens. And unfortunately, a senior citizen would be the final victim of Sean's bloody tirade. Sean Lannan was born in Massachusetts, but he spent his childhood in Gloucester County. He attended Clearview Regional High School in Millica Hill and ran cross country. He graduated in 1993 and served in the U.S. Army as a medical specialist and was deployed to Germany. After being honorably discharged, Sean became a supervisor for an environmental services company. In 2012, he met his future wife, Jennifer, when she was working as an in-home nurse. Jennifer was described as being funny, bright, likable, and warm. She loved reality TV, cooking, and family outings. Jennifer was one of four siblings in a large family that was very loving and close. As a hobby, she enjoyed playing the harp as a child, which was very unique. She had attended Highland Regional High School in Blackwood in Camden County, which is about half an hour from Clearview, and graduated in 1999. After high school, Jennifer enrolled at Rutgers University Camden and majored in journalism and psychology, then later going on to earn her nursing license in 2010. Something that everyone who knew Jennifer could agree on was that she was very in love with Sean. The pair got married in March of 2013. Both had been married before, Sean twice, but they were determined to make this one work. They had three children together and settled in South Jersey near where they both grew up. In 2017, Sean's job at Environmental Industrial Services Corporation, which was based in nearby Swedesboro, sent him out to Grants, New Mexico to work at an oil refinery. I know I probably don't have to say this, but New Mexico is starkly different from New Jersey, especially Grants. Grants is a desert town with a smaller spread out population where there's not much to do and there aren't many businesses open. There are beautiful views, but not much else, except for a considerable drug trafficking operation with anything from meth to fentanyl. Either way, the Lannans packed everything up and made the trip across the country to settle into their new home. Sometimes moving far away from your hometown can provide a fresh start. You can build an entirely new reputation and friend group, and you can sort of reinvent yourself in a new atmosphere. The Lannans welcomed this change because they weren't doing very well at home in Jersey for a variety of reasons. The couple filed for bankruptcy in 2015 because they were nearly $600,000 in debt. 
This included student loan debt and medical debt because of their children's health problems. In addition, Jennifer struggled with an addiction to opioids. She abused her position as a nurse to funnel drugs into her pocket, resulting in her New Jersey nursing license being revoked in 2018, and then her New Mexico nursing license in 2020. Jennifer's brother, Chris Whitman, alleged that Sean was the impetus to Jennifer's drug abuse because he was apparently very controlling. Chris claimed that she did not have substance abuse issues before Sean came into her life. Even though we cannot prove the level of influence that Sean had over Jennifer, just knowing that he's the subject of our episode gives at least some credence to this claim. The couple ended up divorcing in 2019, with Sean getting full custody of all of their children, citing Jennifer's drug issues and alleged child neglect. After the divorce, Jennifer came back to the East Coast and checked herself into a recovery center called Hoving Home Recovery New York to work through her issues. She was really doing well in this facility, until Sean started to visit her there. A friend at the facility named Gabby DeRose initially liked Sean. She said he was charming and sweet, but after a while, she began to see signs of toxicity and disturbing behavior. The main takeaway she had was how Sean would never let Jennifer out of his sight. They were always right beside each other. You may be wondering, wait, how was Sean coming to visit his ex-wife in New York so often all the way from New Mexico? He drove. Yes, he would drive for hours and hours on end to come see her at the facility. Now, you might think that's romantic, but friends would say that he would seem high when he would arrive, which, yes, I can imagine after driving for 24 hours straight, you'd either have to be delirious or on some kind of substance. And one time he walked up in there barefoot. Worse, he would bring the kids sometimes in these excursions. And even worse, he would sneak drugs to Jennifer. Hoving Home tried to transfer Jennifer to another facility, but Sean lured her out of rehab entirely, so she just left. Her friends and family were terrified and infuriated. She had been making such good progress at the center only for it to undoubtedly become undone. They knew the horrible effect that Sean had on Jennifer, but he would just keep roping her in with drugs and the promise of spending more time with her children. Back in New Mexico, Jennifer was fearing for her life. She would call her friends and say that she was afraid that Sean was going to hurt her, that he was mean to her, and that she was scared of him. Her friends tried to convince her to come back to Jersey and to come back to the rehab center, but it was too late. Jennifer was too deep in his clutches to feel like she could ever escape. The drama between the couple was noticeable to everyone on their block in Grants. Their landlord, Moses Marquez, asserted that Jennifer was a problem in their relationship. He said that Sean was a model tenant until Jennifer joined him in New Mexico when they originally moved there in 2017. I'm not sure exactly how the timeline worked out with the family moving out to New Mexico, but I can assume Sean went out there first to get everything set up and start his job, and Jennifer and the kids came sometime afterwards. But apparently, the two would be screaming and cussing at each other, and the police had to be called at least 10 times to their residence between April 2018 and October 2020. One of the times the police were called, Jennifer alleged that Sean had threatened her and accused her of having an affair and stole her phone. The police reports ranged from heroin use to disputes with their nanny. I'm not sure how they had a nanny, during all this chaos, but CPS had to keep showing up to check on the children's welfare because the household was clearly very volatile. They were also, probably obviously, just totally wrecking this house. We're talking holes in the walls and doors being broken. Then, Sean and Jennifer both lost their jobs because of the pandemic, but because of the rent moratorium, their landlord couldn't evict them. And he really wanted to. Not only because of their arguments of property damage, but they often had two drug dealers, 40-year-old Justin Mata and 21-year-old Matthew Miller, over the house all the time. The last time the couple was seen was in December of 2020.
39-year-old Jennifer Lana was declared missing in mid-January of 2021. Her mother told police that she had not heard from her daughter directly since January 9th. Sean had actually been answering Jennifer's phone pretty consistently since late December, which weirded out her friend Gabby. Why couldn't Jennifer ever pick up her own phone? Sadly, police gathered that Sean probably killed Jennifer around January 17th. Sean's story after he was caught was this. He allegedly caught Jennifer sleeping with Justin Mata while their children were drugged and asleep. He said Justin left when he showed up and Jennifer was freaking out because she was afraid that she had accidentally killed the children by giving them too many drugs to sleep. I'm assuming the logic was that she drugged the kids so that they wouldn't wake up during her quote-unquote affair and tell Sean. In a panicked and terrified state, Jennifer allegedly tried to commit suicide by overdosing on drugs in their bedroom. Sean found her alive and then proceeded to shoot her in the head with the 40 caliber handgun he had borrowed from Justin. As an aside, I have no idea what Sean and Jennifer's relationship was at this point. They were still divorced, but they lived together again. I'm not sure if you could say they were dating? Many sources refer to Jennifer as Sean's estranged wife, but from his version of events, there was apparently something morally wrong with her having a relationship with Justin, if she even actually had a relationship with him. He told police that he had planned to do a classic murder-suicide move, but one of the kids had cried out from their bedroom. Not sure how that happened because they were supposed to be drugged to sleep, right? So he decided not to go through with it. In lieu of killing himself, he went ahead and stuffed their mother's body and the sheets from their bed into a big storage crate and moved it into the backyard. Also, some sources say her body was put inside of a plastic tote, which can be understood as a tote bag or those big plastic containers, so I just wanted to put that out there. But yeah, after this, he just went on a serial killing rampage. While there is no evidence of this claim, Sean said that Justin showed him a sexually explicit photo of one of his kids with Matthew Miller and Daniel Lemos, another one of their friends. This established a reasonable motive on Sean's end. Sean persuaded Justin and Matthew to come over to his house individually over the course of a couple of weeks. Both men were shot in the head, dismembered, and stuffed into storage crates, along with the tools he used to dismember them. These totes joined Jennifer's in the backyard. Have you guys been picking up on the theme of Sean's motives? They keep centering around children's safety and doing what's right for children. That's the purest motive a person can have, and it can make people more forgiving about otherwise heinous actions. Not only is he trying to make his motivations seem much more level-headed, but he's also trying to paint himself out to be a hero and someone with strong, unshakable morals. He's so committed to keeping his children safe that he would do anything to protect them. Moving forward, Sean pops up at a friend's house, drenched in bleach, with his hands ragged with cuts and bruises and blisters. He also brought the kids with him. Although this friend was afraid of Sean, she let him and his kids stay with her. She slept in her daughter's room with the door locked to ensure her family's safety. I'm assuming he didn't explain why he was in such a state when he showed up, so that had to have added to the friend's fear and confusion of the situation. Sean tried to spin a thread before he was arrested to try to get the police off of his trail. By February 18th, all three victims were declared missing. He claimed that Jennifer ran off with Justin to Arizona to get drugs and that he had nothing to do with their disappearances. He assumed that Matthew was also with them since they were all friends. This same story was told to the Whitmans, Jennifer's family. Sean also tried to push the body disposal on Daniel Lemos, the one who was allegedly in the photos with his children. He said that Daniel would feed bodies to his pig to cover up the evidence. Sean did a great job of spinning this tale because the police believed him. Jennifer and Justin were known to be drug users, and who would make up a story like a man-eating pig? They were not looking for Daniel in connection with Justin, Matthew, and Jennifer's disappearances. The cops find out, however, that Daniel didn't actually own the pig, a relative did. There was no evidence that this was a man-eating pig, and even less so was in Daniel's possession. 
Luckily for the Grants police, a witness alerted them that Sean was the one who had killed Jennifer, Justin, and Matthew. They informed the police that they had seen Sean asking people around town for an electric saw. They also knew that Sean had hidden a gun and Jennifer's forms of ID. This new information flipped the direction of the investigation again, transforming it into a homicide investigation. Sean ended up getting arrested at a friend's home in Albuquerque on February 24th. This friend was the nanny for the children back in New Jersey, and she came with the family to New Mexico. There was tension between her and Jennifer, so when Jennifer came to join the family in New Mexico, the nanny left. I'm not sure if the nanny left when Jennifer came back from rehab or when she joined the family originally. But anyway, Sean wasn't arrested because of the triple murder. He had assaulted the nanny's daughter, who often babysat his children, a couple months prior at his house. I'm assuming the nanny was unaware of this incident. Little did the police know, Sean had just killed another person the same day they arrested him. Sean paid a six-year-old man named Randall Apostolon to use his truck to transport the dead body crates to a storage facility. Randall lived out of his truck, and he made some extra cash by letting people rent it. He felt like he should get more money for the rental, but Sean didn't like that, so he killed him too. Sean ended up using Randall's truck for storage instead. Unfortunately, Sean was only kept in jail for about a week. He was released on March 2nd. The district attorney's office determined that there wasn't sufficient evidence to keep him in jail for the three suspected murders. Lieutenant David Chavez and the rest of the Grants Police Department knew Sean was involved in those murders, and they were very displeased with the district attorney's decision. The police knew that Sean was capable of much more carnage. On March 4th, 2021, Sean flew back to New Jersey with his kids. The following day, Randall Apostolon's truck was found at the Albuquerque International Sunport. The airport security reported the horrible stench of decomposition emanating from the vehicle. The police then discovered the bodies of Jennifer, Justin, and Matthew in the storage crates, which matched the crates they found in Sean's storage unit that he wanted to put them in. It was clear that their cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head. Randall was found beaten to death and wrapped in a tarp in the passenger seat of his truck. Now, back to Gloucester County. Sean dropped his children off with his mom and sister, who then dropped the kids off with the Whitmans on March 7th. Mind you guys, at this point, the kids are only seven, six, and four years old. Sean told the Whitmans that he was going to find a new job, then go back to New Mexico to look for Jennifer. This is not what he did. He instead decided to burglarize a lakeside cabin somewhere in Elk Township where his old mentor used to spend his summers. The cabin wasn't specifically the mentor's, it was just also in the Lake Garrison community. Then, on March 8th, he showed up at the man's house in East Greenwich. 66-year-old Michael Dabkowski was Sean and his twin brother Eric's big brother back in the 1980s. The Big Brothers Big Sisters of America program is a volunteer-based mentor network that connects typically at-risk youth and a mentor that is tasked with helping a child learn their interests and strengths and increasing their confidence, perform better in school, and stay away from behaviors and groups that can get them in trouble. The institution's vision is that all children achieve their full potential. Michael played a large role in the Landon's lives. He would show up to their birthday parties, take them to the movies, go hiking and fishing with them. Dabkowski was even named Big Brother of the Year in 1985 by the Big Brothers and Sisters of Gloucester and Camden County. He said that even though he taught the Landon twins so much, he had learned even more from them. However, Sean claimed that Michael had repeatedly sexually assaulted him as a child and that Michael was in possession of photos of the abuse. Once Sean burst into Michael's residence, the two men scuffled with each other, and Dabkowski allegedly, according to Sean, gave him the photos. Apparently, they started fighting again, and he beat Michael to death with a hammer he grabbed from the older man's garage. Sean had allegedly also given Michael a hammer so they could, I guess, duel to the death? Police would not disclose whether or not there were any photos, but aside from that, there was no evidence to support Sean's claims against Dabkowski. Not that this means that it didn't happen, 
but nobody else came forward with accusations of abuse or even hearing rumors about the abuse. Sean's own brother declined to comment on the situation, so who even knows what was going on with that? After the murder, a welfare check was called to Michael's residence, but Sean had already escaped to St. Louis, where he was found sleeping in Michael's Honda parked in a random neighborhood off the side of a highway. He was arrested and found with the hammer he used to kill Michael with. Talk about being a cross-country runner. On March 11th, Sean confessed to all five murders. He also claimed to have killed 11 more people who were drug dealers, but the Grants police are still investigating all of that. They have not discovered or at least publicized any evidence that substantiates these claims at the time of this recording. They predict that it could take more than a year before all the details of the case are made available to the public. But Sean pled guilty to the murder in October 2022, and in mid-December 2022 was sentenced to 35 years in prison for the murder of Michael Dabkowski. Charges for the New Mexico murders are still pending. According to J. Michael Thomas, the deputy district attorney for Grants, Landon will probably be extradited back to New Mexico, and there will be a discussion of plea deals before they decide if the cases will even go to trial. Now we have to acknowledge the victims' families. Jennifer's brother Chris was obviously heartbroken. He was doubly hurt because Jennifer had actually been doing much better because of the rehab center. Chris considered her recovered with a clear mind when she came to visit the family in Jersey a couple of months before her death. She wanted to move back home, but just said that it was complicated. Chris rejects all the negative things Sean said about her, but there had to have been some truth to them because everyone in their neighborhood knew of their explosive fights and drug abuse. Jennifer leaves behind five children total, so I assume she had two more children with her first husband. Matthew Miller's grandmother spoke about how Matthew was initially a nice, quiet kid, but his exposure to drugs had ruined his life. He apparently had a brain tumor, which caused him to be addicted to painkillers. Justin Mata's ex-fiancee, Hilary Sweeney, said that he was a kind, loving, and generous man who struggled. She said, It's just absolutely devastating that it ended this way. I want people to know his story and that he was a good person, because it's just horrible what happened. Justin had battled with addiction, PTSD because of his time in prison, and just got with the wrong group of people. Michael Dabkowski's friends referred to him as a gentle soul and an honorable good man who contributed a lot to his community. His sister, Elaine King, said he did everything he could possibly do for the church, for people, anyone that needed it. He was always willing to help. People who knew him were sending out waves of condolences to Elaine. They are from Massachusetts, where he grew up, and from South Jersey, where he spent his adult life. All of them only had the kindest words for Michael. Elaine recalls, Neighbor after neighbor came out and told me what a good person he was. According to his niece, Michael was a pillar of the family. He made all of our family gatherings so much fun for the kids and was always helping everyone, she had said. He was just so genuinely kind. He would help people out both monetarily and emotionally. He was just there for anybody who needed him. Mark Apostolon, Randall's brother, said he was a funny guy who always worked hard and cared about everyone. It could be argued that, if true, the abuse Sean sustained as a child altered him forever, turning him into the killer that he is today. Mark basically said, if you need help, get help. Don't just go and kill a bunch of people. And you know, I can't disagree with this take. One of the most upsetting parts about this case is, nobody really knows why any of it happened. Sean was a completely regular guy by all appearances. He had no particular monetary or social power, no real influence over anyone, he had no criminal record prior to this event, and although his family couldn't be reached for any kind of information, no reports revealed that he had been doing anything out of the ordinary. In the event that he did have some previous run-ins with the law, nothing pointed to the interstate massacre that he orchestrated. I can only assume a mixture of undiagnosed mental health issues, drug abuse, and hostile relationships brought everyone, excluding Dabkowski, together in the worst way possible. This is one of those cases where it's hard to know exactly what's true. 
who really was Sean? No one who knew him spoke particularly well of him or of him at all. The people who did speak of him were largely people that knew him through Jennifer, so who knows what their lens was. Obviously, Sean wasn't a very good person strictly from looking at his actions, but that was just something I noticed in my research. And who really was Jennifer Lannon? Sean had one picture painted of her, a neglectful, drug-addicted mother with no resolve who couldn't stand her own two feet. Her friends and family had another, a nurturing, loving woman who fell on hard times but was devoted to her marriage and children. I'd like to think that only the latter is true, but from what we've learned over the course of this episode, it seems like at least some of both were true. Who was Michael Dipkowski? We don't know if he was a genuinely nice guy who got caught in the throes of a violent mental health crisis, or if he was just another Dennis Pegg. It's hard to make many moral judgments on this case. A lot of the story is based upon Sean's testimony, but that's because he was literally the last man standing. We know that the victor often writes history, but is he really the most reliable source? What I do know is that a trail of grieving families was left behind in the aftermath of all of this, and I hope that they've found peace and healing since the loss of their loved ones. But anyway, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. I will see you all next week. Goodbye.